Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and today we'll be finishing up our conversation about sciatica. Let me introduce our second set of panelists who will give their perspective on this condition. First up, we have Joe Muscolino, a soft tissue-oriented chiropractor who has been in the health and wellness field for decades. He has experience teaching massage therapists in the academic setting, and he currently has an impressive library of bodywork-centered videos that are a valuable resource for health and wellness practitioners. You can find a link to those videos on the How's the Pressure website. Our second guest is Irene Lyon, a nervous system expert who will be drawing on her experience in Feldenkrais and somatic experiencing to address this condition through the lens of trauma. Our third guest will be James Earls, who will be focusing on this condition from a movement perspective, specifically how we can include long chain movements and look at the body with a more holistic and whole body approach. Our fourth guest will be Robin Scher, who will help us look at the subject from the craniosacral point of view. And our fifth and final guest is Marjorie Brooke, who will be helping us understand how scar tissue plays a role in this condition. All of my guests today have had decades of experience in the field and are teachers and educators in their specific field of speciality. As usual, there are going to be a lot of different opinions and perspectives that will be shared over the course of this and other upcoming episodes. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to put one opinion over the other. I believe it is my job to bring in experienced people and ask them good questions. We have a lot to get to, so I give you the second panel on sciatica. All right, now we're going to go ahead and turn to Joe Muscolino to bring a soft tissue-oriented chiropractic perspective to this conversation. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, Haley. Thank you very much for having me back here. It's my pleasure. Well, tell me about sciatica. What's, uh, yes. what's, what's your perspective and experience on working with sciatica? So this might be another one where I go into a bit of a long-winded preface, actually. First of all, to me, sciatica is any condition that compresses and irritates the sciatic nerve. And classically, it's thought of that sciatica would be due to uh, some type of a space-occupying lesion at the spine, meaning that there's something uh, impinging most likely into the intervertebral foramen, foramenal plural of L4, L5, S1, S2, S3, which is what the static nerve nerve roots are, or maybe into the actual central canal. And certainly, you know, whether it's a bulging disc, herniated disc, whether it's a bone spur, ligament hypertrophy, swelling at the spine, those things can all cause sciatica. And I don't disagree with that. But sciatica can also be caused by piriformis syndrome, meaning we have a tight piriformis, regardless of the relationship of the sciatic nerve to the piriformis, regardless of whether the whole thing comes out between piriformis and superior gemellus, or part of all of the sciatic nerve comes out through the middle of the piriformis or whatever, a tight piriformis can compress the sciatic nerve. And we would know that by doing a stretch on the piriformis and not just the person saying, ouch, in their piriformis, but indicating that they feel referral going down into their lower extremity. Um, Certainly, Whitney is so well qualified to cover the assessment, but for sciatica or any radiculopathy, any compressed nerve space-occupying lesion into the lower extremity, I would look to do um, active, passive, straight leg raise uh, with manual resistance, but specifically passive straight leg raise, and put a stretch on that sciatic nerve and see if the referral goes into the lower extremity down along the sciatic nerve or through its innervation pattern. And I just want to make a point that some books would call piriformis syndrome pseudo-sciatica, and I object to that very, very strongly. Anything that presses on the sciatic nerve, to me, is sciatica. And I even had a patient once who tore the fascial sheath of the sciatic nerve down around the gluteal, uh, right right where the, near the ischial tuberosity area. It wasn't piriformis. It wasn't anything up at the spine. To me, that was still sciatica. So the reason I bring all this up is that you don't treat a symptom, a sign. You treat the mechanism of a condition. And sciatica really is, in a way, a symptom. It's you have referral down along the sciatic nerve, sensory or perhaps motor dysfunction there. And the question has to be, well, what is causing that? If what's causing it is a type piriformis, then clearly what I need to do is I need to relax, inhibit, down-regulate the piriformis. I need to 
moist heat it, massage it, stretch it, and always be careful. The piriformis anatomic position is a lateral rotator, so you stretch it with medial rotation. But once the thigh is flexed more than 60 degrees or more, usually typically it's flexed to about 90 degrees, the piriformis becomes a medial rotator, you stretch it with lateral rotation or with horizontal adduction. So you need to relax the piriformis. They also need to figure out why the piriformis is getting tight. I mean, it could be getting tight because it's stabilizing a bad sacroiliac joint. It could be getting tight because you're dropping an arch and you're immediately rotating the talus and the tibia and the femur, and the piriformis is trying to oppose that. So you need to look in the kinematic chain at where the ultimate cause is. But up front, what's on fire is the piriformis is tight, and you need to put that fire out. Then you look at those grand kinematic chains of conspiracies across the body. Now, if it's happening at the spine, I would make two different assertions here. It's very fashionable nowadays to do extension of the spine. Flexion has really gone out of favor. And, um, you know, pendulums always swing too far whenever they swing. Certainly, if I go into flexion of my lumbar spine, I will load the anterior disc, which will push the nucleus pulposus posteriorly against the posterior annular fibers, annulus fibrosus, of the disc fibers, which are being stretched taut just when you're pushing the nucleus against them. And generally, that was, that's what's going to weaken and bulge and perhaps rupture, uh, herniate the disc, usually posterolaterally because the posterior longitudinal ligament buttresses dead center midline. And posterolaterally is right where the IVF is, and that's where the nerve root is. So it's very often stated we should be doing more like McKenzie work, going into extension. And if the sciatica is due to a pathologic disc. I agree. But if the sciatica is due to a bone spur in the intervertebral foramen IVF, then flexion, full flexion compared to full extension will open up the IVF by about 33%, which means you'll make more room in that IVF to decompress the nerve that's being irritated against the bone spur and therefore perhaps bring down that inflammatory cycle. Because very often, even if the disc doesn't heal, never heals, and being very fibrous tissue, it doesn't have a great blood supply to heal well. Um, not that it can't heal, it can, but um, then what we're trying to do is also just bring down the acute inflammatory cycle because very often it's the disc or bone spur plus the inflammation that will really cause the compression on the static nerve with the sensory or motor dysfunction. So my point is, if it's really bone spur, I'm looking at really going toward flexion techniques. If it's really pathologic disc, I'm looking more toward extension techniques. And I have a table that has the PT400M from Oakworks, and I don't make anything by recommending that table or, you know, saying I have it. Um, is that it has what's called a flexion break. If someone's on their stomach, you can put them in flexion. Now, you can mimic that with bolsters under their midsection when they're prone. Or I can put them on their back and put the break underneath their lumbar spine and put them into extension. You can mimic that with bolsters. And for that matter, you can put them on their sides and do lateral flexion break that way. And so it makes it very easy for me to put those motions into the people. Of course, the hard part becomes when, if you have an MRI finding that you can look at the impression, the results of, and you find that they have bone spurs and bad disc, pathologic disc, then you've got a six of one, half dozen of the other. And frankly, I just simply choose to start with, you know, I like to start with flexion as my technique of choice. But if I find that they're either getting worse or not getting better, I switch over toward extension. And you could do the other way around. And I'm sure you could do both. There's benefits to both. One thing I like about the flexion is that the flexion stretches the paraspinal, erector spinae, transversal spinalis, multifidus musculature that when it's tight will pull across the lumbar spine and compress the discs more. So I really like to try and get that massage and stretching into the lumbar paraspinal musculature as well. Hmm. I'm curious about you. You said you had a client, a patient who came in and uh, presented with the static symptoms, but it ended up being uh, a rupture in the, the nerve sheath. Uh, how yeah. did you discover that? Well, let's start with the fact that he had had a systemic cancer 
that he was in remission from, and therefore this systemic cancer could attack soft tissues. He was running and he pushed off and he felt sudden sharp pain in the gluteal butt area. And then with every push off and every step on that side, he had a static-like pain shooting down his lower extremity. And he went to his cancer doctor who basically did a check for the cancer and said, no, you're fine. It's not the cancer. It must be orthopedic. Go to an orthopedist. So he went to an orthopedist and the orthopedist did an MRI of his lumbar spine and said, you've got no, again, that myopic view of it must be back at L4 to S3, like a nerve root must be compressed and said, you have no compression of the nerve roots, no central canal stenosis, nothing like that. It must be your cancer. Go back to your oncologist. The oncologist looked at him again and said, no, it is not that. Go back. So the orthopedist sent him to a neurologist. The neurologist did um, basically um, uh, neural um, spacing out, motor conduction, you know, where they put the needles into the nerve and they look for conduction, neurophysiology testing, electrophysiology testing, and they did it from the top of the thigh all the way down to the bottom of his foot. And there was no blockage of the signal from the top of his thigh, proximal thigh, down to the foot. So the neurologist said, no, it must be the cancer. Um, so before he went back to his oncologist the third time, someone recommended he come see me because I was soft tissue oriented as a chiropractor and that my chiropractic perspective might help. And, you know, I did the exam and nothing seemed to come from the lumbar spine. It didn't, it wasn't piriformis. His piriformis was a little tight. I did work on it a little bit, seeing if it might make some change, but it didn't after a visit or two or three. But after about three, four, five visits, when he wasn't getting better with any of that work, I said, well, we have a picture from, you know, whatever, L1 to S5 or S3 or 4, 5. And we have a picture from the proximal thigh down, but no one ever did an MRI of the gluteal region itself. And the sciatic nerve, after it comes out through the greater sciatic notch, runs down over the deep lateral rotators before it goes deep to the hamstrings. And I ordered an MRI, and lo and behold, because of the weakness in his fascial tissue, most likely from having had the cancer, the epineural, the, the, the fascial sheath of his sciatic nerve was weakened, and he was running, and he was trying to get in good shape and better shape, and um, he tore the sheath by the sudden forceful exertion. And um, it's one of those cases where it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say that there's a problem somewhere between A and Z. And we've checked A to M and we've checked R to Z, but we never checked N to what Q. And it wasn't that I could really do anything for him at that point in time. Um, he needed to go in to have the fascial sheath kind of sewn to give integrity back to the nerve. But um, I, I just want to make the point that we need to just always take a step back and look at the big picture to figure out the mechanism, singular or mechanisms, plural, and say, what can irritate, compress the sciatic nerve? Where can it be damaged, injured? And it's not always at the spine, although most often it probably is. All right. Thank you so much for giving your thoughts on this condition. Uh, if you listeners are interested in learning more about Joe's work and perspective, you can find him at learnmuscles.com. And if you go to How's the Pressure website, you'll find a link for a free month to his video subscription service, and you'll get access to over a 1,000 continuing education video lessons for manual therapists like you. So thank you so much, Joe. Thank you so much, Kelly. My pleasure. All right, so now we're going to turn to Irene Lyon, who's a nervous system expert, and she's going to provide us some context for how trauma plays into this condition. Thanks for joining us, Irene. Hey there, Haley. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's talk about sciatica. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from a sciatic nerve perspective, there's a lot of things that be go could be going on there from a trauma. You know, if I think about my Feldenkrais hat when I was working more with movement, often from that lens, it was like, okay, something is off structurally and the nerve is being pinched and, and all that kind of thing. 
you know, movement isn't in the pelvis and et cetera. But from a trauma point of view, um, the interesting thing, I'll, I'll talk about sort of specifics. So usually when you see, let's just say someone's posture is fine and they actually know how to use their legs and their body and all that, but there's this tightness in that gluteal region where that sciatic nerve comes through. We want to look at what's going on unconsciously in that person that's causing tension in those muscles, right? Bad posture put aside, like, are they actually sitting well in potent posture? They can move, but when they're not moving, there is this underlying activation in those muscles for whatever reason, protecting and protecting. And then it basically for lack of a better way of saying it squeezes that nerve, it pinches it. And then, you know, there's all this tension and then pain. It kind of goes back to this idea of is the symptom, is the thing, the symptom, or is it the problem? Right. And often again, when you start to get people to really track into their body, into their somatic self, most people have some kind of strain in their gut, in their chest, in their um, perennial muscles, in their genitals, in those deep, deep rotators in the, in the bum and in the pelvis. And so if I just use some examples, for instance, we know that um, sexual, sexual trauma is a real thing. Now, sexual trauma doesn't have to be sexual assault. It could be um, childbirth trauma. It could be when you were little um, or younger and you had an accident sporting-wise. A lot of females, and I'll say this because there's probably some women listening to this, who were once gymnasts, a lot of women will fall in things like um, the balance beam. I mean, just imagine if you fell on that thing on your pubic bone. That is painful. But because the tissue and the organs there are sexual orientation, it can send a shock into all that area to protect and to tighten. And so, you know, again, it's like the history is important because someone might end up with pinched nerve sciatica as like a 40 year old. And again, this is just like one hypothetical example. They were maybe say a gymnast when they were young and they fell and they hurt these areas of their pelvis and the motto was get up fast and keep going. You know, you couldn't just lie there and cry and let out the trauma response because that would be weak. And I figure skated growing up. So again, you know, you're on the ice, you fall, you hit yourself. Usually you have to get up pretty fast or else you get run over by another figure skater. But in the gymnast world, like there's a very strong, like Eastern Bloc European, like get up, you're strong, don't cry, keep going. And so if you think about the tension that gets held in a person when they have to do that, it's stupendous. And then what can often happen, again, if I think about just how these old histories can then get coupled into our new history, we may not do any gym work or anything like that, but then maybe we hit our tailbone because we've you know, fallen on ice. And it wasn't that big of a deal, but it can then conjure up and remind our body of all those times we had to clench our butt and our belly to perform. That makes sense? Yeah. I, it sounds like you're, uh, a lot of it is diving into the history uh, of, yeah. your, of your, your client. And I'm curious because, you know, there's, there's the history, uh, there's their history, and there's the history they give you. Right. Yes. And uh, I'm curious how much of a talent or skill you find there is in helping people both reveal something that they either closely guard, but also discover mm -hmm. something which they may not be consciously aware of. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, yeah. I mean, there's some things that a person knows because they were told, you know, this happened to you when you were younger. Um. I'm thinking right now actually of, you know, a lot of, this doesn't happen a lot, but I've heard it where um, let's say a little one when they were young was constipated. It happens. And what do you do? You'd go to the, the doctor, the hospital, you get an enema. It's horrific. Like it's not what we're supposed to have. It's not supposed to happen, but that happens to, you know, obviously relieve the bowels and a person, A, might not know that that occurred to them when they were little, 
or they know it, but they don't connect that to say this pain that they're having as an adult. And we have to remember that when we've had procedures and medical, it's medical procedures can, are, can be very helpful, but they also come with a lot of, a lot of heat and a lot of tension and a lot of pain. And we will unconsciously protect our system, even though we know that we have to have it and that can come out later on. So sometimes you will never know what the history is. And this is where education is really important because if a person isn't open to the fact that that enema, let's just say when they were three, is the reason for their current back pain and gut problems, it will actually be hard to heal that. Like the, it's like the, the slate is there for the healing. And from my experience, the, the desire and the intention of, this, of the, or the client has to be 100% because if there's any skepticism, the body will feel that and it won't be safe to express that somatic memory in adult life, let's say. Right. And so it's like, it's kind of like our DNA. Our DNA is written, it's coded in us, but how that genetic information get ex gets expressed is determinant on the person and their lifestyle and their thoughts and how they relate to themselves in the world. So one question I often get is, well, what if I don't know? What if there's no memory? What if my parents are both, you know, passed away, which is very common. And maybe I did have something and I don't know. It's like, well, it's okay if we don't know, because if we're open to it and open to listening to the somatic story, we actually will have something release and shift, but it might not make any sense cognitively because when stuff happens to us under the age of kind of five-ish, three-ish, it's completely nonverbal, especially under the age of three. And so this is where somatic symptoms that might not make any sense, like right, like, like this random thing of sciatica that comes up or a random rash that comes up. It's like, I didn't eat anything. This is, it's like, but it's this old, old stored traumatic stress that's finally coming out and it's coming out in the form of a sensation. Maybe it's a pain, maybe it's a burning, you know, maybe it is the back seizing up, but it has nothing to do with the fact that you just lifted a heavy box. And so if we don't understand that, we can see, huh, my back just seized up. Maybe I should go get it stretched. Maybe I should pop some pills. And that all has a time and place, you know, to take the inflammation out. But maybe this is something old that's actually just passing through. And this is where people have to be trained in a way from a client perspective to work with that and in some ways not freak out about it, which can be very hard right? Because we get a symptom, we get a pain, we want to get it, we want to make it move, move out. Um, and we want to not live in that pain cycle, but we also have to kind of listen to it and go, what's my system telling me? And why is it telling me this? And we might not know exactly why. Thank you so much, Irene. You're welcome. So that was Irene Lyon. You can find out more about her and her work at her website, which is irenelyon.com. So now I'm going to bring in James Earls, who will give us his thoughts from the perspective of a massage therapist with a focus on combining movement and manual therapy. Welcome, James. Hi, Haley. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. Thank you very much for the invitation. So talk to me about sciatica. Sciatica, again, another one of your complex um, treatment or conditions. Um, sciatica, so if we can make the, the differential kind of diagnosis between whether it's um, actual axial um, so from coming from the spine or whether it's the kind of the pseudo sciatica the muscle compression and um, most commonly the the piriformis um, it's probably easiest kind of talking about piriformis type syndrome um, initially if that is the case then you know all of the the normal treatments on the on the table to help to lengthen release um, piriformis so using um, prone position and lateral rotation of the of the um, 
um, of the humerus, of the femur, um, whilst kind of pinning and stretching, maybe you know, just starting lightly, a little bit of compression to, to warm up, all of the, the, the normal things. Um, in that position, we can also be kind of trying to um, mobilize that intramuscular septum in between the, the hamstrings, so that kind of groove where the, the sciatic, is, or sorry, sciatic nerve is passing through. Um, sometimes that can become a little bit locked up and a little bit restrictive. Um, so that can be not really impinging, but um, stopping the glide of the sciatic nerve. So in that um, prone position, then we can use a little bit of active and, and or passive rotation of the tibia and fibula. Um, so the knee is flexed and then the client can turn their leg or turn the foot really kind of it's easiest to cue medially and laterally or just in and out. So it's difficult to kind of coordinate um, for most clients. I normally just take their take their ankle and ask them to kind of turn their leg or their foot one way and then the other. And that creates an, an alternate um, contraction of medial lateral hamstrings. And then as a practitioner, you can kind of swim your fingers in between in that um, uh, intramuscular septum so making sure that that is free and also then you can also sneak around the medial hamstring to get in between medial hamstring and the adductor magnus that can also be a useful approach to make sure that that all of the the, the loose connective tissue or the areolar tissue is all gliding allowing the the, the um, sciatic nerve to be as as free as it could or should um to follow that up, then, provided that they're out of an acute kind of phase, then I would do very similar work in standing. So having them stand with the affected side um, forward. Um, so maybe let's say it's the right side. So right foot forward and holding on to maybe the table or to a chair, whichever is appropriate to their, their height. And then using a kind of a threading the needle type movement. So if they're holding, if the right foot is forward, holding the, the uh, chair with the right hand and then using the left hand in a kind of threading needle um, action, and that creates a little bit of medial rotation through the hip, um, the right hip. And then I'll be working from the back, making sure that the piriformis, deep lateral, other deep lateral rotators are allowing the, the medial rotation to happen. And so I can be using my thumb from the back to assist with that. Usually in that position, the client is closed, it can be a bit strange kind of standing, moving your um, bottom in, in, in a, even in a clinic setting um, in your underwear. So be closed, helping assist with the, the, the medial rotation. And then also then fingers or thumb can be used to, again, make sure that the uh, intramuscular septum is mobile. And again, there should be off-acute phase where they can be not internally or externally rotating the knee, but internally, externally rotating the hip. Because what a lot of, um, of practitioners don't realize is that the hamstrings are probably more involved with hip rotation than they are with knee rotation. So by having the client take their, so if they can hold on to the chair with, with both hands and then just small movements, just kind of taking their bottom back lateral and back medial or just back left, back right, and that will create a little bit of internal external rotation of the target hip. And so where we were on the table in between the, the, the hamstrings or in between the, the medial hamstring and the uh, adductor magnus, we can still be in those places, but withstanding or with the client in standing. And so getting a better, a much better sense of what the tissue is doing whenever it's a little loaded and with the probably the more common type of action where the hip is moving over the knee rather than passively on the table where the, well, the lower limb or lower leg is moving relative to the femur. That's, that can be useful, but it's, that would be for me the beginning of the treatment to kind of let me get a little bit deeper and just kind of introduce some of the, the aspects and the, the standing work would then be the kind of finishing off, making sure that everything's doing what it should do. Um, question, 
you're talking about this from a non-acute phase, right? Because if they're in an acute phase, some of those things are not quite as accessible. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or suggestions for body workers who encounter someone who is in an acute phase. So in acute phase, that it's, well, first would be differential diagnosis and making sure you're still within your scope of practice and probably all, all the things that, that Ruth has, has laid out. Um, then if it is in acute phase, then probably positioning is, the, is key. So um, making sure you're comfortable with sideline positioning and um, having access to just you know, a thousand one different bolsters, pillows, round things, square things, flat things, tall things, just, just and experimenting as much as possible. Um, sideline is probably going to be my preferred um, position initially in, in cute phase because then you can also play with um, much more flexion and extension that might be pos- that might be possible on the on um, prone or supine um, and also we can combine into side flexion and then also rotation add and abduction for the for the target hip so if the target hip of the affected side is the uppermost then we can be bolstering under the flexed knee um, into more a b duction or into more a d duction if you want a little bit more stretch so the first thing would be getting the client comfortable and that would that would be true of whether it's kind of whether it's axial or the the kind of the pseudo sciatica um, positioning is key. And what about axial? So we talked a lot about uh, the when if it's if it's a muscular or, or perhaps piriformis mm-hmm. syndrome, uh, but if it's an axial, is there any other uh, different way you would approach working with someone? With actual um if it's if it's quite acute, then it would be the same same kind of setup. And in that setup, then can I um, release any kind of trigger points that may be involved? But then I also want to start combining some movement. Um, so using perhaps their knee, for example, to create a little bit of a little bit more flexion and rotation to start thinking about the facet joints. So kind of cr- start creating a little bit more gapping, a little bit more ease um, through that. Um, and that that's also then many of the many of the causes of the actual um, Seneca would be again scope of practice issues. So making sure they're having a proper diagnosis. Um, and with that, so if they have got the proper diagnosis, then I can be quite creative in their positioning to try and target if it is whatever facet joints or um, spondylolisthesis, wherever the the either the impingements or um, the um, um, joint contact might be happening. So I can start then cre- um, combining the coupled motions. So thinking about um, side flexions and rotations that might be happening. How can I get them into a position of ease, not just for the soft tissue, but also for their, their joints. And that, that starts getting a lot more kind of complex. Um, but it's kind of, it's, it is complex if you're kind of thinking through it, but it's also is kind of quite easy is, well, can I keep bolstering until they're in a position of comfort? And that's kind of just kind of being as creative as possible and thinking about flexion extension and side flexion and also then rotation. So with the bolstering under the, the uppermost knee, not only are we getting AD and AB duction of the hip, but we can also be influencing right or left rotation coming into the spine. Awesome. Thank you so much, James. No problem. Pleasure. So if you want to learn more about James and his work, you can find out at www.borntowalk.com. Now we're going to bring in Robin Scher, who's going to talk to us from the perspective of cranial sacral therapy. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Glad to be here, Haley. So tell me about sciatica and working with sciatica. Okay. So working with sciatica versus working with someone who walks in the office and tells me they have sciatica, right? And this is another place where I say, who told you that? Because could be a tight piriformis, right? Could be true sciatica. Could be pain in the front of the leg. And they're telling me, I don't know what that means to this person until they tell me what their symptoms are and how they came to the word sciatica. Could be, could be low back pain, could be mid-back pain. 
I've heard a lot of things from folks who've told me they had sciatica. So once again, uh, you know, a diagnosis is a, a descriptor at best for someone in my position. And it can be, that can be very useful to have that descriptor, but it doesn't necessarily address, uh, doesn't tell me what to do, and it doesn't necessarily tell the client what's going on for them or what's causing it. So if indeed we've got some sort of you know, funkiness going on with the sciatic nerve and symptoms that go along with that, pain going down the leg, numbness, tingling, stuff like that, um, then many of the beginning basic foundational techniques of craniosacral therapy work really well. This is one condition where folks who are beginning their training, say through the Upledger Institute, they've had their CST1, can do really, really well just by following a protocol. And that's exciting, right? You know, folks have learned a, a basic whole body evaluation and also... We call it a 10-step, but it has multi-parts. So also a, a protocol that systematically, gently offers the body opportunities to open up, relax, and have better function um, in a way that has the potential to do a ton of good and has almost zero potential for harm. So it's a fabulous protocol, and working with sciatica is one place where it, it, it works really well. Um, what is that protocol? The the 10-step protocol? Yeah. You want me to... Well... Um, Just an overview. An overview of it is, um, first of all, always taking, um, taking a measurement of how the body is able to respond to the craniosacral rhythm, so how the whole body system is able to respond to movement of cerebrospinal fluid, because... In an ideal body, everything in the body is able to respond to it. That doesn't mean that there is craniosacral rhythm in the legs. Of course not. That's not part of the craniosacral system. But the legs should respond to that motion, just like the legs can respond to breathing if you're paying enough attention, right? If we sit here and actually pay enough attention, our legs do move when we breathe slightly, and we can pay attention to that. So doing a whole body evaluation by putting the hands on various places bilaterally on both sides of the body to feel how it's able to respond to or not to the craniosacral rhythm, and then working at uh, the largest diaphragms in the body. So at the pelvis, at the respiratory diaphragm, at what we call the thoracic inlet, some people call the thoracic outlet, uh, in, the, in the throat, at the occipital cranial base. And then also working with the sutures and possible sutural restrictions in the cranium itself and mobilizing the dural tube. So with a true, I have finger quotes going here, sciatica, a lot of the pelvic techniques are really good, a lot of the sacral techniques, so very gently distracting the sacrum from L5, uh, very gently encouraging the ASISs to move medially so that the sacrum can drop posterior. Oh, my goodness, that can make a, such a huge difference in folks. Also doing a diaphragm release with a hand in front of and front and back, just contacting the bones of the pelvis and working with the soft tissue. I would say the way that it works is mostly just bringing a sense of awareness and comfort to that area, and then the soft tissue begins to release and, and guarding goes down, and it tends to be very effective. Working from where I am as a craniosacral therapy practitioner at this point, I'm looking for sources, right? Um, it may not be that I get to work with the source of that particular pain down the leg in any given session, but I'm going to be doing an evaluation of what, you know, what moves well and what doesn't. Uh, fascial glide, right? We do it as deep tissue practitioners. How well does this move or not? We do it very subtly as craniosacral therapy practitioners. You know, how, how does the fascia move as a whole with just a very gentle, gentle traction? We often say like five grams or less, so the weight of a nickel or less. Um, and as is often the case in my office, I find that sources are not necessarily where the pain is. 
So what could be causing that sensation could be anywhere in the body. I've certainly worked with folks with low back pain and back of leg pain who've had something going on in a hand. And once that has been released, or once that has resolved itself, then the body reorganizes and that pain moves on. Thank you, Robin. Thanks a lot, Haley. That was Robin Scher. And you can learn more about her through her website at livinginthebody.net. And if you want to learn more about craniosacral therapy in general or its trainings, you can visit upledger.com. So now I'm going to bring in Marjorie Brook, who will give us her thoughts as an expert in scar tissue. Welcome, Marjorie. Hi, Haley. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's talk about sciatica. Ooh. Okay. So sciatica can be caused uh, by scar tissue. And obviously, being a scar tissue person, they're going to say, I say everything is caused by scar tissue. But the truth being told, uh, sciatica is an impinged nerve, right? And it's sending pain. So scar tissue can cause, be a cause of back or leg pain. Um, it's generally thought to be the potential cause of the patient's pain if it binds the lumbar nerve root uh, with fibrous adhesions. This can happen after surgery. This can really happen just from sitting all day long, right? Um, they say, oh, you've been sitting, you have to get up, ice it, and move it. Well, yeah, but if they're sitting all the time and they're sitting in the same position, usually on one cheek more than the other, or leaning over with their elbow on the chair, they're going to start to uh, irritate the area, inflammation, scar tissue, adhesions. So truth be told, um, we need to mobilize and we need to stretch but at the same time, we need to look in and see, are we adhered? Light stretching can, in fact, uh, release scar tissue. But if we haven't uh, um, really reset the mobilization and retrain the person's body mechanics, um, it's just going to reoccur, right? Because you just, that, 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 that is always going to sit that way. Everybody knows not to sit on their wallet anymore, but you still get a few who come in with the wallet in the back pocket. And you know that they've been, they've been sitting on it or um, that they're not properly sitting uh, the right way. They're stuck in traffic all the time um, and they won't refuse to use uh, cruise control. So their leg is in that one position all the time. So we have to go back through everything that they do and all, each one of those things has to be reset. Uh, you know, uh, uh, average daily living activities is really a huge culprit when it comes to sciatica. If we're talking about sciatica um, from surgeries, um, back surgeries and things like that. Well, that's a whole other ball game. That's where we definitely have to get in and work the scar tissue and release it and then remobilize uh, and reintegrate so um, that the nerve is not being strangled anymore. And th- where can that occur along the sciatic nerve? The scar tissue? Mm-hmm. Oh, it can occur anywhere. That's a very good question. Some people just think that sciatica is being, you know, because it's the piriformis. Um, actually, I find a large amount of times that sciatica is being triggered at the attachment of the IT and the um, lateral head of the bicep femoris. And like, is they attach at the same place as the piriformis, but many people get like, like tunnel vision. Oh, it's US sciatica. Let me get my elbow and shove it into your piriformis and grind that piriformis away. It's usually not, I mean, yes, the piriformis is most likely going to be inflamed if there's sciatica because they're right next to each other, but it's not generally always the cause and that people will stop at releasing the piriformis. Um, I do find that the IT band and the uh, bicep femoris head combination is a huge culprit and it's always a a part of or having something to do with sciatic pain. Um, And again, that has to do with uh, how we walk, how we use our hips, um, you know, and we have all the other muscles to look at, the psoas and the QL as far as sciatica. But in regard to scar tissue along the nerve root, it can be along the nerve. It really generally can be anywhere, anywhere that they're sitting the wrong way or leaning on, anything that's repetitive use. And if there's been scar tissue. Also, remember, it's not just the scar tissue from if there's surgery from the back, like they're thinking like a, uh, um, any type of lumbar surgery. You also have to look at... Um, C-sections, hysterectomy, um, gallbladder, any abdominal surgeries, um, angioplasty, not angioplasty, that's the other end, excuse me, uh, abdominoplasty, uh, all the liposuction, any of that, oh, especially liposuction as far as sciatic is concerned, if they've taken some out of the backside. Um, Many times uh, they will hit the nerve when they're doing the action of the liposuction. So the area gets inflamed after the liposuction because of the abuse. And then it needs to be smoothed out, addressed, and relaxed 
and hopefully any, so you can really get scar tissue anywhere along the line of the nerve, especially um, uh, with someone who's doing a lot of liposuction for that. So it really can occur anywhere. Do you have any memorable anecdotal examples of working with scar tissue and sciatica and those two kind of meeting? Yeah, it actually, we'll, we'll stick with the liposuction. I actually have um, a yoga instructor who decided, because all of her friends were doing it, she really, you know, she was basically a size two to begin with. There really wasn't much on her. And she went and got liposuction, sculpted um, her glutes and down uh, her into her thighs to take out what she perceived as being a bad thing. And he hit the nerves and she was in constant pain uh, running down her legs and in her glutes because it just really was. And then it was a little bit that he hit the nerves and then the rest of it that from the scraping and the attack on the body, because most people don't understand how vicious liposuction can be. Um, she was in nerve pain 24 uh, seven down her legs and down her uh, glutes. So we had to literally work to release what scar tissue had formed. Cause as you know, with liposuction, they scrape out the superficial fascia, which is, uh, taking out a lot of things that did not were not supposed to be removed but then the top tissue is going to adhere to the lower tissue and the nerves were getting stuck in between the layers that were left between the skin and the 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 deep layer of the fascia causing a lot of pain so that took us that took us a long time because she had had a lot of it done and we just had to inch by inch release the tissue and and get her moving again so what was the, the kind of the protocol of the work that you did together in order to, to accomplish some success? Okay, well, she would basically point out what was really bothering her the most for that session. And then we would take that area. We would first go in. I first repolarized the area uh, using uh, microcurrent point stimulation because uh, scar tissue um, is running at a positive charge versus the body's electromagnetic system, which is negative. So it's interfering with the flow of the area to begin with. Um, so we want to try to flip that polarity using some polarity therapy. And um, then it's a hands-on with me. It's my, my work, my straight method, where we're just manually releasing the tissue in every which direction that we're feeling the restrictions. Then followed up with mobilization, with therapeutic stretching and range of motion in order to reset and get the tissues to start functioning that are still there to function and let go of the sciatic nerve. Because another part of this whole process is that as the swelling, first the swelling happened and the nerves were also being put pressure on the sciatic nerve by the swelling. Then when the swelling went down, um, she had already done a compensation of how to function with all of this. So we had to retrain uh, her. She couldn't do a lot of her yoga positions because of just the pull and the strain. So we went through uh, her positions. What were you feeling in this position? And then I could see where she was compensating we worked on her compensation through release and, and body mechanics. Well, thank you so much, Marjorie. My pleasure. If you want to learn more about Marjorie and her work, you can learn more at marjoriebrookseminars.com. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to share a few of my thoughts and takeaways from this particular episode. So one of the first things that came to me in this particular episode was around where we look for the disruptions in the sciatic nerve. And oftentimes we're focused on the nerve root right near the spine. And then also us for as massage therapists, we also really do look for that piriformis syndrome. We're looking into the glutes, uh, partly because it's something we often can have great impact on since it's mus muscle, uh, but also because uh, we're very comfortable with that, uh, that terminology. Like we have heard piriformis syndrome over and over again. So it's something that we look for. Uh, but there are many reasons why sciatica symptoms can arise. And you don't have to look any further than Joe Muscolino's example uh, from one of his clients who had, I think it was a tear in their sciatic nerve sheath to, to see that there are a myriad of different possibilities. Uh, I also appreciated Irene Lyon's focus on how it might be low-grade postural tension as remnants of past trauma. We often think of muscular holding pattern as primarily a result of high use or high levels of activity. However, opening up our thought process to include how the person might relate to certain parts of their body during or due to past experiences can be very revealing. 
It doesn't take a big leap of imagination to see how tension in the gluteals from sexual trauma might negatively affect the normal function of the piriformis, possibly leading to one of those common causes of sciatica that we often look for, that piriformis syndrome that we were just talking about. Uh, James Earls also had a nice uh, movement and palpation suggestions to release any possible restrictions that the sciatic nerve might be encountering on its journey down through the leg. And I also really appreciated how Robin was adamant about finding out what a client meant when they say they have sciatica. And so often it can be a catch-all phrase that doesn't really help us identify what's happening. And this is reinforced when multiple guests remember hearing clients say they have sciatica only to find out they're having pain in the front of their leg or in the mid-back. You know, it's a helpful reminder that we should listen to our clients but it's also us, up to us to help them dig a little deeper into their experience. I was also interested to hear her speak from experience about how even newer craniosacral therapists have high rates of success with sciatic pain just using a basic 10-step cranio protocol. Uh, and lastly, I, I don't want to leave her out, but I really found it interesting how scar tissue in and around the gluteals from liposuction can cause irritation of the sciatic nerve. And this is a tip of the cap to to Marjorie Brooke for bringing that tidbit to the daylight. Uh, I had no idea uh, that liposuction could be connected to sciatica. Before this conversation, that would have never crossed my mind. Uh, But now I know to look for it. So thank you to her for that. All right, so that'll do it for my thoughts on this particular episode, and I look forward to being back in two weeks. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. A big thank you to all of my experienced and esteemed panelists. I continue to be honored that they let me poke and prod their minds on these subjects. It wouldn't be possible without them. Please do rate us on iTunes or through whichever podcast app that you listen to us. And feel free to visit us on Facebook and suggest new topics for me to cover in future episodes. Until then, be well.